I want to finish up John, John itself, which gives me five chapters. So I'll make a Herculean effort to get through all five. Not being Hercules, that may not work out, but <laughs> we'll, we shall see. There's not a lot technical here that needs explanation, but maybe some comments as we go. Still, I think it's been very good for us to go through and just uh, concentrate on the things that Emmanuel did for us and has done for us, setting the stage for what he will do for us. So we need to gain faith by hearing these words and realize that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the things he did in the Old Testament... The things he did here in the early New Testament, his mind, his will, his emotions, uh, all are the same, always will be, because he and the Father are very constant. <clears throat> they do have emotions of love, of kindness, of mercy. They do have emotions of anger at times, uh, but their anger is short and their mercy is long. So... Uh, we can count on those because we know that we are human, very human, and we do incur his wrath. And yet on the other hand, he says he will forgive us and have mercy. And that's what we are about to read about today is all about. That his blood is worth more than all of ours put together. So chapter 17 of John, these words spoke Emmanuel. I'm going to continue to use Emmanuel, even though he was still in that sense using Jesus at that time, but avoids the conflict that people have over Jesus, Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, and all the various things that they say it has to be. Uh, in any language, Emmanuel is the same. <laughs> and he said we would use it here in the end. So I'm going to go ahead and use that in spite of <coughs> the Jesus of the King James Version translation. So he spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. So what they were about to partake of was going to be for the glorification of God, both on earth then and in heaven. And, of course, Christ would be re-glorified. As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So, Christ's jurisdiction as King of kings and Lord of lords to come uh, will be power over all flesh. And to resurrect, to save, uh, eternal judgment is his. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Emmanuel, whom you have sent. That's what everything is all about, is the Father and the Son. Our lives are entwined with them from creation on, <clears throat> and our greatest honor and praise and glory belong to them. And in fact, our lives hang in the balance with their judgment. So if there's anybody you want to shine up to, or whose boots you want to polish, or to give accolades to, those are the two, not anyone else. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. So he had accomplished what he had come for with the last huge effort just ahead of him here. He says, And now, O Father, glorify you me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he was yet to die, be resurrected, and given back the glory that he had ahead of time. But when he said here he had finished the work, he had lived 33 and a half years on this earth at that point, and that was the real work. A great test, a great trial was ahead of him, but he had accomplished what he had been sent here to do, and that was to live a sinless, perfect human life. <clears throat> something no one before or since has done. Now, as a human, he was tempted in all points like as we are, remember? He had every emotion, every temptation that has beset man from Adam on down. Uh, 
He was no different in that way. He had to have been tempted the same way we are and have overcome that and not given in in order to be our Savior. Now, given that the Father could give him enough of his spirit and power that he wouldn't sin, we need to trust and have faith that he is capable of giving us a measure of his spirit that will help us overcome sin. We're not on our own, and we need to grasp that and reach out for help to overcome, because that is what he has said we must do. To all seven churches in Revelation, he says, overcome, and I will grant you the blessings of eternal life and everything that comes with it. So we've been set here to overcome. doesn't matter what we've done heretofore. It matters what we do hereafter. And we pray to God for help and His Spirit that we not continue in sin. Remember Ezekiel 33. It's not how you start, it's how you end up that counts. That's, that's all that matters. Is how we wind up. So we don't need to live in guilt for the past. We need to live in faith for the future. Uh, maybe those words we ought to burn into our minds. Guilt from the past can overrun us very easily and keep us from growing and overcoming because we feel so badly about what we've been, what we've done, how we are. And that can hold us back. But we need forgiveness, and God promises forgiveness. And we go through Passover... And if we forgive others, we are forgiven. So let's look to faith for the future as opposed to guilt of the past. Anyway, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men which you have give, you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given me are of you. He had made it clear that everything he was doing came from the Father. For I have given to them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that you did send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, he had called those out of the world to be apostles, but he's called us out of the world as well to be his disciples, his ambassadors, uh, his begotten children. So we have a calling as assuredly as they did. Uh, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Now, they weren't yet by any means, but they were to finish out their job and responsibility, and they will be in the kingdom of God. Just like Hebrews 11, uh, the apostles are not mentioned there, but they are mentioned in the book of Revelation as being in the kingdom of God over the twelve tribes of Israel. So they are definitely included in the Bride of Christ and in high positions of leadership. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me I've kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Of course, referring to Judas. And now come I to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Uh, He was all but certainly not joyful at the moment, considering where he was about to go and be killed. But he had great joy inside that he had finished what he had been sent to do. And now the grand finale was coming, and there was satisfaction. I think Paul reflected that when he said toward the end of his life, "I've, I've run the course, I've finished the fight, I fought a good fight. So he anticipated being in the kingdom of God because he had overcome and he believed that God and his word are true. That if he would overcome, if he would grow, if he had run the race to the finish, that he would be in the kingdom of God. 
And we need to come to have that same kind of faith, not out of self-righteousness or how great we think we are, but out of having persevered, endured, and overcome, changed. And then that confidence comes with that. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. So he said, you're going to have to stay here on earth. And he recognized before the Father, he couldn't at that point take them out of the world. But we can keep them from Satan. And we need to pray that diligently, because Satan is out seeking whom he may devour, and he is after those who are called out more particularly than anyone else, for sure. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. So, obeying the words of this book, all these words, Matthew 4, 4, every word of God, is what sets us aside from the world. The world pays no attention to God's Word. And, I mean, sometimes they'll give lip service to the Bible and they'll read a few verses out of it, but they don't accept the whole Word of God by any means. And this whole Word is truth. I know there are mistranslations and there are things here and there that are not completely as inspired originally, but I'll tell you what, when somebody tells me the Bible isn't an inspired book, uh, I've read this book enough that it doesn't matter whether we're in Genesis or Revelation, it all fits together. It does not contradict. And there are explanations for the places that it sometimes appears to. So it is God's Word. And this is what sets us apart from the rest of the world, is this Word, this truth. Your Word is truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So many would be called through these particular disciples. And then here in the end time as well, God called (coughs) Herbert Armstrong just like he had uh, Peter and the others originally. Uh, And we believe through the words of this book that he spoke. So God has continued to send men, not everyone, but specific men that he has chosen to teach the word of God. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are. Now, his spirit represents a certain amount of the glory of God reflected in our lives if we follow what he says. So even though we're not glorified like 1 Corinthians 15, there's glory to God in his spirit working through us to produce good fruits. I am them and you and me that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me. Is unification, is being one in spirit and attitude, focus, desire, and purpose uh, of God? Yes, it is. Well, then what is division and splitting and splintering of? That's of human, carnal nature, and Satan. God's spirit leads to unity, to peace, and to sharing and giving and loving, not the other way. So he wants us to be made one and close, and loving, and of one spirit, one mind, one attitude, even as Paul said that there be no divisions when I come there in 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is. Father, I will that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you have sent me. And I have declared to you, or to them, your name, and I will declare it, that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So, Christ wants us to all be in the same level of love and trust and understanding that he and the Father are and were. 
so that we might join that uh, very small group uh, with the same level of obedience, love, and affection. They want to welcome us into that. And that's what Christ was praying here, was that we, we might enter into that very close relationship with them and be one forevermore. 18, when Emmanuel had spoken these words, he went forth with, with his disciples uh, over Brook Cedron, or Kidron, where was a garden into the which he entered and his disciples, Gethsemane, other places call it. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Emmanuel oft times resorted there with his disciples. He makes that comment because Judas was off gathering up uh, the soldiers to come after him, so he knew where to go. Judas then, having received a band of men or officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came forth with lanterns and torches and weapons. Emmanuel, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek you? Now, this was the Jews. This weren't the Romans who came after him. It was the Jews. The ones who had been trying to kill him for years. This time he was going to allow it. They answered him, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Emmanuel said to them, I am. The he is in italics. It isn't uh, in the original text. I am was the name of God in the Old Testament. I am that I am. Uh, very, very powerful words because when the Jews heard I am, they knew it was uh, speaking of God. And that incensed them highly. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. So he wasn't with the disciples in Emmanuel. He was standing with the Pharisees and those who had been sent to take him. As soon then as he had said to them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now, interestingly, throughout the Bible, when people came into the presence of Emmanuel or Christ or Melchizedek, the God of the Old Testament, they would always fall on their face. When they were in the grip or the presence of Satan, they would fall over backward. Now, in this case, they were in Christ's presence, but they fell backward to the ground. Now, what's, is that a contradiction? No. They were there before Christ, but they were under the influence of Satan. And therefore, Christ being there, because of their connection to Satan, caused them to go over backward. They were not on his side, they were against him. And that shows <clears throat> that they were uh, doing Satan's work. Then asked he them again, Whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Emmanuel answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Speaking of his disciples. You're after me, leave these guys alone. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of them which you gave me, have I lost none. Well, they would not be crucified with him. They wouldn't be lost even physically. Uh, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. been speculated before that Peter being Peter probably did not swing at his ear. I'm sure he was swinging to split his head open. And the guy may have ducked a little. He got the ear instead. Uh, this account doesn't say that Christ stuck it back on, but another does. Then said Emmanuel to Peter, Put up your sword into the sheath. The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink it? We're not going to resist. Uh, I'm going to do this. Then the band and the captain and the officers of the Jews took Emmanuel and bound him and led him away to Anna, Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember, we read that. Uh, he had told them, hey, don't bring the Romans in here to kill us all. Uh, we'll say this guy was causing an insurrection, called himself a king, and we'll use him for the scapegoat, kill him, and the rest of us will get off scot-free. We read that a few chapters back. And Simon Peter followed Emmanuel, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest and went in with Emmanuel into the palace of the 
high priest. He's speaking of himself, John. But Peter stood at the door without, uh, then went out that other disciple, which was known to the high priest, and spoke to her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then said the damsel that kept the door to Peter, Are not you also one of this man's disciples? Don't I recognize you? Oh, no, not me. And the servants and officers, remember what Christ had told him, and the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. Now, this was right after Passover. I don't know how early it was, but uh, it was over in this area, this country, in the Promised Land, and it can still be pretty cool here in April. This is, I think, the last day of April, isn't it? And it's in the 40s right now. And we might get snow again in May before you plant in June. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. <clears throat> the high priest then asked Emmanuel of his disciples and of his doctrine. What about your men, your followers, and what do you believe? Emmanuel answered to him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where the Jews always resort. And in secret, have I said nothing? He said, I've, I've said everything right out in the open that I've said in private. Why ask you me? Ask them which heard me what I've said to them. Behold, they know what I said. So he says, bring out those witnesses. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood, which stood by struck Emmanuel with the palm of his hand, saying, How dare you answer the priest so? Emmanuel answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Tell me what it was. But if well, why do you smite me? What he had said wasn't an accusation to the priest or the high priest. It was simply a matter of, why don't you ask those that are accusing me what I've said? Now, Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. And they said, therefore, to him, are not you also one of the disciples? He denied it said, I am not. <clears throat> and one of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did not I see you in the garden with him? <laughs> I'm, I'm kin to the servant that you cut the ear off of. I'm pretty sure I saw you there. I think his memory would have been pretty sharp if it was his cousin or his brother or somebody who'd had his ear chopped and then put back on. Peter then denied again, and immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter, I'm sure, was very chagrined. Then led they Emmanuel from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So the Jews were keeping the Passover a day late, as we know. Christ had kept it the night before, and it was the Jews' preparation day. Uh, they were not keeping it according to Exodus 12. Pilate then went out into them and said, What accusation bring you against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not a criminal, we would not have delivered him to you. <clears throat> then Pilate said to them, Take you him and judge him according to your law. You're the one that brought him here. Why did you bring me? Why'd you bring him to a Roman for judgment? The Jews therefore said to him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. That the sayings of Emmanuel might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what death he should die, being put to death. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Emmanuel and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Emmanuel answered him, Say you this thing of yourself, or did others tell it you of me? He hadn't spoken to Pilate before. He says, how, do you, how did you find out, or why do you think I claim to be king of the Jews? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? No. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. Have, what have you done? Well, he was going to question him. What, what is it you've done? Emmanuel answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. 
So his kingdom is to come, and we will fight with him when he returns, dipped with his vesture dipped in blood, but not now. <clears throat> so he says, we could fight, we would win. But that's not the point. I'm here to die. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Same question. Emmanuel answered, you say that I'm a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Now notice he didn't say he had come there to be a king then. His kingship is for a later time when he returns. Pilate said to him, what is truth? <laughs> of course, we know the word of God says your word is truth, but Pilate asked Christ, what is truth? He says, I, I came, I'm bearing the truth. Well, how is that a crime to claim you are bearing the truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find in him no fault at all. You know, you brought him in here as a criminal. I, I haven't heard any testimony that he's done anything. I have no witnesses uh, of any wrongdoing the man has done. He hasn't killed anybody, hasn't stolen, hasn't lied, hasn't committed adultery, he hasn't uh, murdered. What you know? I find no fault in him. We're just talking about what is truth here. But you have a custom that I should release to you one at the Passover. Will you therefore that I release to you the King of the Jews? Then cried they all again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So they wanted Barabbas freed and not punished so that they could get at Christ. Then Pilate therefore took Emmanuel and scourged him, and the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. So they were taking those accusations of the Jews about him claiming to be a king, and uh, they did a parody of it by dressing him up like a king. Put a crown on him, only it was thorns, and a purple robe. A robe. And said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. So it was all done in derision, obviously, to dress him up as a, like a king, but then to smite him and to punish him. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to them, Behold, I bring him forth to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. So he says again, I see no wrong in this man. This is on your head, not mine. Then came Emmanuel forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look what you're causing. Look what you're doing. And when the priests, chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take you him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. I'm not going to do it. You take him and do it. Uh, that reminds me of Exodus 23, 2, that a mob shall, be do, shall do nothing. Uh, there's no place in the Bible for the public or a membership of Israel or the church to take things into their own hands. But Pilate said, Go ahead and do this thing. Of course, the chief priests were the ones that were pushing it. Uh, this is verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Now, they'd already said they couldn't kill anybody, but now they said by the law he ought to die. They couldn't get their own story straight. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Uh, this, this upset Pilate. He knew this Christ was being railroaded. He knew there was no crime, there was no sin. And, uh, and yet we're here talking about God, and uh, it was unsettling to Pilate. And went again into the judgment hall and said to Emmanuel, Whence are you? Where'd you come from? But Emmanuel gave him no answer. He wasn't going to defend himself. He was going to go through with this. Then said Pilate to him, Speak you not to me? Know you not that I have power to crucify you and have power to release you? You're, <laughs> you're going to give me the silent treatment of not even answering my questions when I can 
say yes or no, and you'll either live or die. Then said Pilate to him, Speak you not? Oh, I already read that. Emmanuel answered, You could have no power at all against me except it were given you from above. So he says, I can escape. You can't do anything to me except what the Father and I allow. Therefore, he has delivered me to you. He that delivered me to you has the greater sin. So he's saying these Pharisees, these Jews that are trying to get me killed are the ones that have got the sin, not you. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Because Christ himself had said, it's not your fault, it's theirs. So he, he not only was neutral at this point, he was on Christ's side. And he sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you're not Caesar's friend. And this be said that he was uh, an officer of Caesar's, and not Caesar's friend uh, was fearful to him too, because he knew what Caesar could do. Whosoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So he said, Christ is against Caesar. And you will be too, if you don't get rid of this guy who's against it, Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Emmanuel forth and sat down in the judgment seat. You're going to pass judgment in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha, that apparently was the the courtroom that was paved with stones. Uh, it can also mean a knoll. Uh, and it was the preparation of the Passover. So this was still on the 14th, the Jews keeping it on the 15th, and about the 6th hour, or noon, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Uh, you're going to call him a king? You're going to say he says he's a king? He's not my king. He's your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? He was kind of putting it to them a little bit here, because he knew they didn't accept Christ as their king, <coughs> and yet they were accusing that he was claiming to be king. The, Jew, the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, they didn't accept Caesar as king either in everyday life. But they were speaking with a forked tongue here. Caesar's our king. Did they really believe that? These Pharisees and chief priests of the Jews? Not in your life they didn't. <coughs> then delivered he them therefore to them to be crucified, and they took Emmanuel and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, and the Hebrew word means skull. <coughs> I've seen the, I've seen a place here in southern Utah near the site of Jerusalem, which is very, very much shaped like a skull. And I've seen the one that they claim is the place of the skull in the Middle East, and this one looks a lot more like a skull than that one does. So that's where they took him, where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Emmanuel in the middle. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the stake. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So he, he mocked the Jews a little more here. You're killing your king. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Emmanuel was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. So Pilate had, had made this sign out of three languages. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, No, no, that's not true. Write not the king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. <laughs> Just shut up and go away. Uh, he's the king of the Jews as far as I'm concerned. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Emmanuel, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. So there were four of them who were doing the actual crucifixion. Uh, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let's not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. We don't want to destroy this. It's a pretty nice coat. 
that the scripture might be fulfilled which says, They parted my raiment among them, and from my vesture they did cast lots. These things before the soldiers, therefore the soldiers did. Uh, a lot of references to Christ in the Old Testament, particularly in Psalms. Verse 25, Now there stood by the stake of Emmanuel his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. So three Marys were there. When Emmanuel therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then said he to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. Uh, Joseph's father, uh, Christ, I guess you'd call him stepfather, apparently had died, and Christ had been taking care of his mother, but here he told his mother, John's going to take care of you. Uh, he'll treat you like a mother, and you treat him like a son. So he consigned his mother to John's care. After this, Emmanuel, knowing that all things were now accomplished, the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it in his mouth. When, when Emmanuel therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and died. The Jews, therefore, because it was their preparation, that the body should not remain upon the stake on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So Christ had been crucified or was crucified here on Wednesday afternoon, and that was the preparation, which was the holy day, the 14th, uh, that Christ kept. Then that was the preparation for the Jews who kept the 15th. So they wanted him off the stake before the sun went down, and their high day, the 15th, started. Now that tells you Christ was keeping the high day the day before, because there was the day after. And we, for Decades kept the high day on the 15th, the wrong day. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the second, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Emmanuel and saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Because you, you could stand up on your feet and keep from uh, asphyxiation. Uh, so he was already dead, so there was no sense in breaking his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came out blood and water. And when he saw that it bore record, and his record is true, and he knows that he says true, that you might believe. For these things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. That's uh, in Psalms and I think in Exodus. And again, another scripture says, They shall look upon him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Emmanuel, probably his uncle, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Emmanuel. And Pilate gave him permission. He came, therefore, and took the body. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Emmanuel by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. That's a lot of herbs. Then they took the body of Emmanuel and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is, to bury. Uh, now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. Therefore they laid Emmanuel therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was near at hand. So they wanted to get him in there and the tomb closed before sundown. Uh, the Jewish high day near at hand, the 15th. Uh, chapter 20 then. We might make this. The first day of the week comes Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark. So he'd been crucified on Wednesday afternoon, uh, buried before sundown, so Wednesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon, Friday afternoon, Saturday afternoon is 72 hours or three days and three nights that he had been in the sepulcher. 
Now, she came on Sunday morning, and it makes it clear somewhere here that it was the first day of the week. So, for him to have been in the grave three days and three nights, he couldn't have been crucified on Good Friday. <laughs> that would only been a day and a half, or really only a day, a day and a night. So, there was a Wednesday Passover that year, and he was killed Wednesday evening. So, she came while it was yet dark. Sun wasn't up on Sunday morning. And she saw that the stone had been rolled away. And then she runs and comes to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, John, and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they put him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they both ran together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. I don't know why he had to include that. Uh, John was going to be sure that he beat Peter there. Uh, he may have, I don't know whether he could run faster, but he did run faster at this particular instance. Uh, and maybe that was the urgency because of the close relationship that he had with Christ. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet when he not in. So he had a measure of respect there, but he could look in and he could see Christ's clothes laying there. Then comes Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and sees the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So Christ was very neat about this. He, he took the, when he was resurrected, he took the grave clothes off, folded them up neatly, and then made his way out of the tomb. I doubt any of us coming back to life would have been that careful. We have trouble making our own bed when we get up in the morning, much less folding our bed clothes or our, yeah, our grave clothes. For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. It says there in uh, uh, Psalm 16.10 that Christ, uh, God would not leave his soul in hell or the grave. Then the disciples went away again to their own home. But Mary stood without the sepulcher, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and sees two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Emmanuel had laid. They said to her, Woman, why do you cry? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Emmanuel standing and knew not that it was Emmanuel. So he was standing right behind her. And Emmanuel said to her, Woman, why do you weep? Just like the angels had said. Who do you seek? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have borne him hence, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I don't know whether he disguised his voice a little bit, because she knew his voice well, but she didn't recognize it. I guess perhaps she was so broken up and crying and weeping, it she just didn't grasp it. And Emmanuel said to her, Mary, and then, da-da, here comes recognition. She turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. The Emmanuel said to her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. We're all this in together. We're all in this together. The Father is mine and he's yours. And you're his. So we're, we're in the in group, if you will. The inner circle. You got about six and a half billion people on the earth today, and there are only a few thousand that have been called, and fewer even being chosen, and we are part of the inner circle that was being spoken of here. We need to respect that and show ourselves to be part of that inner circle of the Father and the Son. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, uh, so here, here it says that it was Sunday morning when all this happened. 
It was toward evening then, but still the same day, so the sun hadn't yet gone down. If it had gone down, then it would have been the beginning of Monday. When the doors were shut, where the disciples assembled for fear of the Jews, and Cain Emmanuel stood in the midst of them, said to them, Peace be to you. So, by the end of the day, uh, he had ascended to the Father's throne and come back, and now he could appear, and you'll see that he could touch them. Without him, they were afraid of the Jews. They'd just seen the Jews kill him, so they were hiding with the door shut, probably locked. We'll see a little later on that he didn't mind he could come through walls. And when he had so said, he showed them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Emmanuel said to them, Again, peace be to you. As my Father has sent me, even so I send you. I've been sent to do a job. Now I'm going to send you to do a job. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive you the Holy Spirit. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted to them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Now that's an awful lot of power he gave those disciples to soon be his apostles. I think we need to tie this in with Matthew 18, verse 18. People go back here and read about... uh, Someone who has sinned against you, not against somebody else, against you. Uh, Notice verse 15 of Matthew 18. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you. This isn't you saw him trespass against somebody else, and you come running as a tattletale. This is if your brother transgress against you personally. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, of how he is offended, transgressed, hurt, sinned against you. This doesn't include every sin that somebody might commit. This is a personal one. It's all it's talking about. It's what it says. If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. People try to use this to encompass any sin you ever or I ever commit, and if they can find some witness somewhere, they'll bring it to you. That's not what it says. Anyway, but if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. These have to be eyewitnesses. If you don't have two eyewitnesses, you have nothing. No judgment is made without eyewitnesses. Uh, Paul even told Timothy, I think it was, or Titus, Timothy, I think, uh, not to even hear an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. So somebody had to have seen uh, the sin, whatever it was, and it didn't have to be a sin in general against anybody, but against you. You're the only one with the authority to do this if the sin was against you. No one else is allowed to do it. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church, But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen man and a publican. Now, people will say church here in the Greek is ecclesia, which means that that is taken before the congregation. There is no example of that anywhere in Israel's history or the history of the New Testament church. Uh, That was, judgment was given to the ministry. Paul is the one that decided that the man in Corinth would be separated and told them so. So he was the one that called the man a heathen and a publican and to separate it. Now, tie John 20, verse 23 in with that, along with Matthew 16, verse 18. uh, Whatsoever I say to you, uh, whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, uh, if somebody sins against you, you go to the person who sinned against you. Not against somebody else, but against you. And if they won't hear you and make it right or apologize or re- restore what's stolen or whatever they did, then you have to have two actual witnesses that that did occur and they saw it happen. If you don't have those, that's the end of the story. Then if that doesn't work, you take it to the church 
Now, the church is a body, and the ecclesia does include all members of the church. But 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 5 make it very clear that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and elders, and so on, have been put in the church to make judgments. That is always the way it was in the New Te- Old Testament and in the New Testament. Every example. So this cannot contradict that. But John twenty twenty three backs this up. Here he told those who were to be the apostles <coughs> that whatever judgment they made, Christ would back it up. If someone has sinned, and that sin is brought before the ministry, then they hear the story, and they can say either... Uh, we'll show mercy in this case, or the evidence is you didn't actually do it, or whatever. <laughs> but it does talk about sins or transgressions, and it could be an actual sin or transgression. And if the apostle says, we're going to forgive it, then it was, God would forgive it. But if he said, no, <laughs> you did this and your attitude stinks, we're going to retain this, then God would retain it. So the ministry here was the one given the power and the authority to do that. And in Matthew 16, 18, and in uh, this scripture, he clearly laid it on Peter as the physical head of the church under Christ that his judgments would be binding. Here he tells all of the apostles that their judgments would be binding. So when you read Matthew 18, 18, which says the same thing, then obviously uh, he has given at least two other places here very clearly that it was the ministers who did the binding and the loosing. It wasn't the congregation voting on something. And that ties in, of course, with 1 Corinthians 12. You're all members of the body, but the head is what determines what the body will do. And he put the ministry as the head. Now, people say, well, no, Christ is the head. Well, yes, he is the spiritual head, and he's the founder of the church, but he also, of the, of the human or body, the spiritual body, the church, he placed authority in it, and in that sense, the ministry is a type of Christ. They're the ones who are designated as the head of the church as men under Christ, the spiritual head. Well, that's what Scripture says. And this ties in very closely with that, uh, and all Scripture must agree. So Matthew 18, 18, at the end of the uh, description there about someone sins against you, has to fit John 20, 23 and Matthew 16, 18 and 19, where God conferred or Christ conferred that on the ministry itself. Well, that's a lot of power that he gave the ministry. Now, that isn't final judgment. God the Father gave Christ final judgment on us. And uh, Christ gave the apostles judgment in terms of everyday life where people live uh, in sin. And they could either commute that sin and say, we'll allow you to stay in the church, or they could retain that sin and kick them out. The membership does not do that. Again, Exodus 23.2, I think it is, that a mob shall do nothing, putting that in plain English. So, uh, let's understand Matthew 18 uh, in what it actually says, not we, how people have misused it, abused it, and applied it in places it doesn't even belong. It's a sin against you and you only. And the, he who apparently did it to you, and then you have to have witnesses or it dies right there. If it's just he said, she said, uh, that doesn't count. Without witnesses, it can't be established. Do they actually see the sin? That's what a witness is. Heard about the sin, or the one sinned against told me about it, is not evidence. There's no court in the world today that accepts hearsay evidence. You've got to have witnesses. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with him when Emmanuel came. The other disciples therefore said to him, 
We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my fingers into the print of the nails, and I thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas, he's called. And after eight days again his disciples were with him. And Thomas was with them this time. Then came Emmanuel, the doors being shut, and stood in the middle and said, Peace be to you. That's what he said before, peace be to you. So he came right through the wall. He was spirit. Uh, he could manifest himself physically so they could see him, but his spirit, he passed right through the wall. That will be kind of a neat part of being spirit, won't it? You don't have to travel around the world. You just kind of go through it. Then said he to Thomas, Reach here your finger, and behold my hands. And reach here your hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So he checked him out and said, Okay, yeah, you're him. Emmanuel said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Your faith and mine is based on what we have read, perhaps healings and miracles we may have seen, based on the creation around us. We see him through the invisible, he who is invisible through the things he's made, and yet we believe. I believe it, you believe it, or we wouldn't be here. We'd be watching TV or something. And many other signs truly did Emmanuel in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Like I've said before, you can't get all history in a book, uh, but a lot of things he did. But these are written that you might believe that Emmanuel the Christ, or is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So he's offered us eternal life even though we have not yet seen him. It's not just a blind date, it's a blind marriage. <laughs> We won't see we won't see our uh, redeemer, our husband to be, until he shows up to take us to the wedding. And yet we believe anyway. That would be, uh, we talk about blind dates once in a while, where you first meet somebody on a blind date. How about a blind marriage? That's even scarier, unless you believe. Chapter twenty-one, then. After these things, Emmanuel showed himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise he showed himself. Now, here's a story worth telling, he says. <laughs> there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called the Doubter, and Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Uh, Peter said to them, I go fishing. They say to him, we'll go with you. Well, you know, Christ is gone. We were with him. This is all over. Let's go fishing. That's what we used to do. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Fished all night. Not a bite, not a nibble. Well, they were using nets, but not, not a catch of any kind. But when the morning was now come, Emmanuel stood on the shore. But the disciples knew not that it was Emmanuel. They were a ways away. Uh, says how far in a little bit. Then Emmanuel said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered, No. <laughs> we, we got nothing to eat. We fished all night, got nothing. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. They cast, therefore, and said, Well, nothing else has worked. Might as well try that. So they cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of the fishes. Couldn't even pull it into the boat. Therefore that disciple whom Emmanuel loved, John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that, that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked. I guess they took off their clothes to pre preserve them while they were fishing so they didn't get uh, water and, and fish juice on them. So he he put whatever his fisher's coat was on and threw himself into the sea. He, he was always eager. You can't say anything about his level of enthusiasm. The other disciples came in a little boat or ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, uh, that's uh, about 300 feet or 100 yards, 
dragging the net with fish. They couldn't put it in the boat. They were just dragging along behind the boat. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals and fish laid thereon and bread. Well, they'd fished all night and didn't have any fish, and Christ was there with bread and fish and a fire going. And Emmanuel said to them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fish, big fish, 153. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. And Emmanuel said to them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was him. And Emmanuel then comes and takes bread and gives them and fish likewise. I think there's one account, is this of this story where he said, uh, I'll make you fishers of men instead of fish. Uh, in this case, he talked to, to Peter and used a little different line on him, different analogy. Uh, verse 14, this is now the third time that Emmanuel showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead, twice in the room and then out here. So when they had dined, Emmanuel said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. Now, what was he asking him there? Was he saying, Do you love me more than you love these other men? Or was he saying, Do you love me more than you love these fish? That may have been the case, because he had been a fisherman, and when Christ disappeared, he immediately went back to fishing. So, you, do you love me or do you love fishing? may have been what he was saying. So he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, <clears throat> you know I love you. <clears throat> he said to him, Feed my sheep. <clears throat> uh, there's a progression here, I think. First time he said lambs, and the next time he says sheep. So there were about to be at Acts some new lambs coming into the church. They would mature into sheep, and he was to continue on. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, love you me? By now Peter's getting upset. He was grieved. It vexed his soul, because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Probably sounded a little irritated, because he was grieved. Uh, Emmanuel said to him, feed my sheep. So the third time he said, you got a job to do. And that's a lot of emphasis. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you put your own clothes on and walked where you wanted to. But when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands and another shall gird you and carry you where you would not. This spoke he, signified, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. So he said, Your freedom of movement is going to be curtailed. Uh, they're going to take you and hang you on a stake. Meantime, follow me. So he said, You've got to follow through. Feed my lambs that I call, and then when they begin sheep, become sheep, keep feeding them and, until you die. Follow me till you die. Then Peter, turning about, sees the disciple whom Emmanuel loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, again, John, who's writing this, and said, Lord, which is he that betrays you? Peter, seeing him, says to Emmanuel, Lord, and what shall this man do? He says, I'm, I'm supposed to be feeding the sheep. And Christ had told him in Matthew 16, 18, that he would be the physical head under Christ of the church, the main leader above the other disciples and apostles. Uh, well, what, what's John going to be doing? I've got to go die? What's John going to do? Emmanuel said to him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? It's my judgment what happens to John. He can be killed or he can live till I come back. It's none of your business. I'm telling you to follow me. Well, we are not our brother's keeper in that sense. And we certainly are not responsible for each other's salvation, as I heard somebody had said recently. No, 
what does, I think it's First Thessalonians say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not somebody else's. Work out your own. You're responsible only for yourself. Ezekiel 33 says that. Not the father to the son or the son to the father, but each man will answer for himself. Where do people come up with these stupid ideas that are not biblical? <clears throat> because they want to put their judgment on somebody else and make themselves responsible for whether that person's a sinner or not. That's what it all comes down to. It is presumptuous to take upon yourself things that God does not give you. Now, he did give the ministry the ability and the authority to decide whether to retain someone's sin and punish them or to forgive it. Not final judgment, but judgments having to do with the church and the membership uh, until Christ returns. Some people will not like that. Uh, let them fighting words to them who think that they are we the people and the mob shall rule. But that's not what Christ says. It's his judgment what will happen to John. And John indeed did live until he died a natural death, almost 100 A.D. and nearly 100 years old. <clears throat> then went this saying abroad among the brethren that, the, that this disciple should not die. Yet Emmanuel said not to him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Now John was going to die. He didn't say that. He says, It's none of your business if, if I do let him live till I come back. That would have been 2,000 years. That's not what he said. He says, It's just none of your business when he dies, but you're going to uh, die an unnatural death. This is the disciple which testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he's admitting here that he's the one that he's been talking about all along as the one Christ loved. <clears throat> there are also many other things which Emmanuel did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. So he finishes the story there, and we finished on time in spite of it being five chapters, and we'll dismiss there. Brethren, please take your hymnals.